You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. I'm Peter Steinfeld, and welcome back to the Employee Safety Podcast. I invited Al Berman to the show today to discuss his thoughts on why emergency preparedness is good business and the ROI that organizations can experience by improving their preparedness strategies. Al is the chairman of the board at Disaster Recovery International, also known as DRI, and he's the president of DRI Foundation. Al has quite an impressive background in operational resilience and business continuity, and he currently serves as an advisor to companies and governments around the world. I found his tips on how organizations can measure and analyze their preparedness programs very helpful, and I think you will as well. Let's get into the show. Al, how are you? I'm fine, Peter. Wonderful. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you've got a lot going on, and it's really great to have you on the show. And our focus today is the ROI of emergency preparedness. But before we begin, can you give us just a brief overview of your career background to provide our listeners with some context? Sure. I'm a former tech geek who implemented technology and cybersecurity as a member of the U.S. Air Force, um, working in conjunction with IBM on early real-time relational database systems. I actually created one of the first commercial cybersecurity systems a long, long time ago. I then built a career in financial services, being a CIO and later the president of a major financial trust company. In 2006, I joined Sash Recovery Institute International, DRI International, and was CEO for 10 years. I am currently the chairman of the board of DRI International and the president of the DRI Foundation. Can you tell us just a bit more about DRI and DRI Foundation and some of the programs and services that they offer? DRI International is the oldest and the largest of the education and certification organizations in the field of business continuity and the related resiliency services. Uh, it was founded in 1988. It has more than 20,000 certified professionals in over 100 countries. We teach in over 50 countries in 14 languages. Uh, in 2011, in response to the great Japanese earthquake and the nuclear disaster at Fukushima, we created the DRI Foundation to help those affected by disasters. This effort, we call it Donations After Disasters, has aided disaster victims, um, and that includes donations to food banks and medical facilities, and has helped people around the world. The foundation expanded about six years ago to help veterans obtain training, certification, and job placement. Uh, we've worked with wounded warriors in the United States, Canada, and Europe, having provided these free services to over 750 veterans. About four years ago, we created Women in Business Continuity Management to help more women enter the resiliency field and also provide them with a forum to discuss their particular needs. I didn't realize the organization went so far back and just what a fantastic mission. So thank you for, for helping lead that organization. Well, let's go ahead and jump into it. When you talk to organizations about improving preparedness or resiliency, what's the main concept that you focus on? DRI's focus is to show organizations the benefit of being prepared. The premise is, while preparedness is obviously important, it's also essential to providing goods and services when your company is under duress or the government is under duress. 
This means preparedness goes beyond the traditional dramatic disasters to deal with any type of disruption, from cyber incidents to problems caused by supply chain interruptions. You know, the 9-11 terrorist attack on the World Trade Center in the Pentagon showed the lack of preparedness. Before the 2001 attack, there was another attack on the World Trade Center in 1993. Uh, the bombing killed six people and injured thousands. The attack and the response, ironically, did much to actually damage the cause of preparedness response. The attack took place midday on a Friday. The structural damage to the building was minor. And so residents were allowed back into the building on the weekend, to, and they were able to remove critical information repository. Well, the servers were undamaged and removed from the building, relocated to functionally, functioning operational sites. This made organizations feel that the level of preparedness was sufficient. Eight and a half years later, there were no service to remove from the destroyed buildings and organizations realized how prepared they really were. In late 2001, I moderated a panel of the largest financial institutions in the United States talking about their experience during 9-11. And one of the banks in total Canada talked about how they gained market share because they were fully functional before the competitors could resume services. The lesson was that not being prepared was clearly a competitive disadvantage. In fact, you would see right after 9-11, institutions began to advertise their preparedness to show that they would be there for their customers no matter what. That combined with legislation and a lot of more regulatory requirements quickly made private sector and government institutions create resiliency programs. And, and that was the essence of how we started to build integrated, holistic, resilient responses. You know, it's kind of like a broken record with each disaster that occurs. I remember back when Katrina happened, the organizations that were able to communicate quickly and they had a resiliency plan were able to snap up office space in Baton Rouge, which was limited, and they were able to continue operations, whereas those who couldn't did not, and they went out of business or got acquired. So generally speaking, when you're talking to someone about this for the first time, how do they respond to this messaging that it's good for business to focus on resiliency? Do you find that they're hesitant to adopt that approach, or do you find they're on board with it right away? Has it changed from 20 years ago versus today? It's interesting you talk about Katrina, which was really not a natural disaster, but a man-made one caused by the defective construction of levees. But the first company to recover, interesting enough, was the Sheridan Hotel. Mm. And they did it because despite the fact that the infrastructure was damaged and quickly repaired, their problem was labor. And so they set up trailers so housekeepers and waiters and waiters and waitresses would have a place to live and, and therefore service it. But yeah, there really has been a change in the approach to how we address resiliency. You know, the federal government, probably back in 1996, started programs with the premise that they would be able to address responses to disasters by creating what was known, well, was known then as the all hazards approach, mm -hmm. a list of um, disaster causes and how to respond to them. In 1996, FEMA listed eight items in their all hazard list. 11 years later, the state of California tried to adopt the same process, and they were able to identify 59 hazards. Wow. And what was really clear was that the 51 other hazards existed in 1996. So I started to affectionately call them not all hazards, but known hazards. Mm. We certainly have more than that now. As a resilient profess professional, 
we were trying to prepare for all contingencies. I knew that was not possible. You know, going back to 2011, when Japan was shaken by one of the largest earthquakes ever, followed by a tsunami, which wiped out all of the infrastructure, followed by the meltdown at the nuclear plant of Fukushima, we realized that we couldn't address all incidents. We couldn't address the permutations that were taking place. So a team of professionals created, instead of a causal-based model, an effects or consequence or impact model for maintaining the viability of organizations after an interruption. And when we looked at it, we found that there were really three impact categories. One, an incident that affects the ability to use a facility, floods, fire, chemical attack, pandemics, terrorist attacks, you name it, the facility just was not accessible. So we needed to find a way to work remotely, either using commercial recovery sites as an alternate site or an alternate site that we owned, or even to work from home. And so those people who followed this model when the pandemic hit realized we could not use the facility because people wouldn't travel to it. And so they were much more prepared to work at home. The second category was an incident that affected the production resources, supply chain, personnel, outside contact like financial institutions. You know, think about the dramatic incidents like pandemics or less dramatic ones, such as transit strike, the supply chain shortages we're seeing today or even labor strikes. So the idea of looking at all of the resources and components that were necessary to conduct business or to serve municipalities, we were able to start to look at those chains and say, if something was affected, what would we do? And so clearly, when we have problems like transit strikes, we set up separate transportation for employees. Labor strikes, we train managers so that they can perform those functions. But this was things that just affect production, and that includes everything, including people. And finally, it's something that will clearly understand the incident that affects technology. Everything from program errors, which probably is still responsible for much of the damage, to cyber attacks, and all the rest of the incidents that affected technology, including that, communications. By simplifying our approach, you know, impacts versus causes, we're able to complete to create plants that were scalable. They were event neutral. We didn't care what caused the problem, only how it affected us. And we were able to account for things like black swans incidents that we didn't, un didn't know what happened, or gray rhinos, you know, highly probable events with a great deal of impact, which we dismissed or overlooked, whether that be a stock market financial bubble or the flooding of New Orleans. We knew New Orleans was, was built below the Mississippi level, and it was always going to flood. And so we looked at that and all the rest of the incidents that affected technology, you know, everything, again, from program error to cyber. The model works for all sizes of disasters, and it also works for short-term power failures to large-scale natural disasters. That's a great model to use. Well, what do you find to be the biggest oversight or perhaps pitfall that some organizations make when it comes to their business continuity or emergency preparedness plans? You know, it starts with not having clear-cut objectives. Without having a specific set of targets, it's impossible to construct a solution. The objectives have to come from or at least be accepted by the C-suite or other managing personnel. The plan has to reflect these goals. A short example is personal one. I was proposing a project, a business continuity resilience project for a large corporation. And I had a meeting with the CEO and he said, I can only, he only had one question. 
And he said to me, tell me what you intend to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I rattled off five objectives. I said, oh, you want to maintain excellent customer support, provide financial controls and stability, et cetera, et cetera. And he looked at me and he said, wow, that's exactly what we want. And I sort of laughed at him and said, I'm really not that smart. I just read your company's mission statement, which is <laughs> over your left shoulder. And he, he looked me straight in the eye. He said, you really are that smart. He said, every other, every other one of your competitors sat in the same seat and no one bothered to read me my mission statement. Mm. So clearly you want to build something that fits with the culture of the organization, its objective. So start with clearly defined objectives that make sense in the context of the organization you're trying to protect and have been agreed upon by the, the authorized authority. It, it allows you to set this common ground for everything. It's a, it's a level set. And if you accomplish this, you'll have a very successful conclusion. If you don't do this, the resulting project, no matter how good, may not meet the expectations of the person who oversees the project. It's the most important thing you ever do in management, and that's to manage expectation. It's so important. When everybody knows what to expect and you're always on the same page, it's much easier to measure progress and success. And with that in mind, what should an organization measure or analyze in their preparedness programs to determine their effectiveness? The KPI, the key performance indicators, should be the same as those of the organization. Mm. Is the response effective? Does it, in our case, does, can we test it and show that it works? Is it current? Do we really have an update procedure so that we know that it meets the current needs of the organization? Things that organizations do all the time. You know, they want to make sure that policies and procedures are current and the way they produce is concerned. Does it include an awareness program? So everyone knows what to do and how to do it. Even if it means they do nothing but stay out of the way, which sometimes won't happen in organizations because people don't know what they're supposed to do. Uh, and the true measure is, does it meet the objectives that we discussed previously? Because that is the true test of success. So did we accomplish what we said we were? And then well, one last thought is that effective resiliency must be embedded in day-to-day -day operations. It can't be retrofitted mm. so that when it is executed, it doesn't require unusual measures. But those that are ingrained in the fiber of the operation, I've watched organizations try to retrofit resilience, and it goes counter to everything they're doing. So organizations know now this has to be built into the process. And so it's always updated. People are always aware of it. The procedures match what the objectives of the organization. They change with changes in the organizations, so acquisitions, things like that. We talk to organizations about making sure that you embed those into what you're doing. Well, this is a big one I've wanted to ask you, which is, it's on a lot of people's minds. How can organizations see the ROI of this business strategy? And what are some of the intangible benefits? Everyone struggles with that, trying to get executives to sign off on investing in emergency preparedness and business continuity. Yeah, so let's discuss why business continuity is so important. And let's start with small and medium-sized businesses, and we'll move our way up. I spend a lot of time talking to that market, small and medium-sized business. And I don't try to scare them. There are enough people who do that. I do not tell them that preparedness is good because it's lip service. I talk about business. Mm -hmm. I start with the typical question is, do you know what small and medium-sized businesses want to be? Well, they want to be medium and large-sized businesses. 
And the way to get there is for the customers to know that they will always be there to provide their goods and services no matter what. So the return on investment will be measured by the growth of the business. As more and more customers feel more comfortable with you, you will see businesses grow. I mean, if you fail once to deliver, your reputation goes down the drain. All the hard work goes down the drain. It's easy with with large firms because they are always looking for return on investment. And the typical response is preparedness is like insurance. You have to pay for whether you use it or not. Several years ago, I was working for a healthcare organization as the program director. I was a consultant and the CFL knew about my insurance background. So one day when I was walking by his office, he called me in to ask me about increasing his business interruption insurance from $35 million to $50 million per event. After all, the revenues were over $2 billion. First of all, I had to explain to him that business interruption insurance covers profit, not revenue. And based on his financial, the increase was unwarranted. I further went on to explain that the preparedness plan substantially reduced the financial losses that they were expecting. And therefore, based on the plans, I suggested we reduce the business interruption insurance to $20 million from 35. I also explained to him it'd save about $700,000 a year in premiums. I also said that I should get a 10% of the savings. Uh, I learned a valuable lesson that day. Negotiate your fee before giving somebody the solution. But they did take my advice and they did save $700,000 a year because of the program, purely ROI. Mm. You invested $250,000 in, in a program that saves you $700,000 a year. Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. And it's hard savings. It's budgeted money. It's hard saving. Taking into consideration the effectiveness of your preparedness plan and your insurance company can actually provide that much sought after ROI. Uh, just one quick note, a consulting firm I know of just signed a $3 million contract to do exactly that. They hired a resiliency professional to look at their insurance and their plans. Based on the preliminary findings, the company estimates it's going to save about $100 million in premiums over 10 years, wow. over the next 10 years. That's an ROI. Yes, it is. And that's the thing they you can, if you can talk We'll have a longer discussion later, but if you can talk to people about real money and not say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's the platitudes of safety and those things, they already know that. They already have security in place to do that. Your job is to say, look, you can save hard dollars. You save $100 million over 10 years. It's, it's a pretty good ROI. Yeah, I like the mindset here is to approach not looking at the money you're spending as expenses, but as an investment. Approach it like you would yep. any investment. And it absolutely turns around how business people look at this. Oh, it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, having been, having been a CEO and a CIO and a manager, and um, I learned the secret that, you know, you had to deal with the issue. You couldn't just give them rote that everybody's been giving them for years. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work in small and medium-sized businesses. It doesn't work in large businesses. You have to give them a real business case and, and show a value add. And once, once this large company looked at what we were doing, they said, oh my God, why wouldn't we do this? I mean, the investment is so small considering the return. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Well, with that said, we typically close out each episode by asking our guests to provide the listeners with a just a brief piece of advice they can take back to their organizations to make an immediate impact. But you've already provided so many helpful ideas already. So I'll ask you a much more specific question. 
How can business continuity or disaster recovery professionals get their executive leadership team on board with the idea that preparedness is good business? As it turns out, it's the same question. I'm often asked, what skills should a resilience professional have that will bring added value to their organization? And the answer you get, and somewhat of a contrarian by nature, the answer I typically get from most recruiting firms is soft skills, good communications, written and oral, and oral type things. And, and while that might be true, the single most valuable asset a resilience professional can bring to the table is a knowledge of the business that their organization has. Mm. Executives don't know anything about business impact analysis, recovery windows, and other specific resilience terms. But you talk to them about products and services, and you will not only get their attention, but the feeling that you can do more than just preparedness not only will help you get to leadership to listen, which is your intent, but it's the surest way to gain recognition and a strong career path. I can tell you from personal experience, it's how I went from being the head of business continuity to being president of a banking subsidiary. It was the engagement with the business, understanding exactly what the problem was. And that's a hard thing to do. I mean, you really do have to go through there. I always tell people, they go, what should I do? I go, read the annual report. Just read the first three pages so that you'll have some idea of exactly what the company is. And I think that's the most important thing because business continuity starts with business. And if you don't understand that, how do you come up with a solution? Yeah, without a doubt. Each business is in existence for a reason. And your job as the continuity professional is to keep that reason alive. No more, no less. Yeah, yeah I think that's true. And, and, and it's really the value. And it makes your job so much more interesting. Well, Al, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate your time, expertise, and your advice. It's been a pleasure. I've always joined doing this. And uh, if you have any follow-up questions, you can send me an email at aberman at tri.org. And by the way, if you are a veteran, you may be eligible for free training certification and help with job placement, or if you're a woman looking to enter the profession. So please feel free to contact us. You can find us at drii.org or Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or LinkedIn. But thank you for having me. Fantastic. Well, thanks again to Al and to all of our listeners for joining us on the Employee Safety Podcast. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to subscribe to future episodes at Alert Media's website or on your favorite podcast player. You can also give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would appreciate that. Stay safe out there, everyone. Until next time. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.